Good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 2. Before we get into the Word, let let me pray for us and ask the Lord to make Himself known, to stir our hearts and our affections for Him. Our Heavenly Father, I thank You for today. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace, the love that you have lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is who we are. Lord, in our call to worship, as we read Psalm 100, it said, enter the courts of the Lord with thanksgiving and praise, that we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, and that we may enter into your presence not with fear and trembling, but in thanksgiving and joy, knowing that you have accepted us because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, the righteousness that he has imputed upon us. Lord, may we never take that for granted, that we get to sit in your presence hearing from your word, And may your word pierce into our hearts. May it convict us. May it illuminate truth. May it confront our sin. May it open up our eyes. May it stir our hearts and our affections. And may this be more than just an intellectual pursuit, but may this knowledge then impact our minds. May it transform our hearts. That we will behold you as King who is establishing his kingdom and who will rule for all of eternity. Lord, you know everybody in this room. You know what we're thinking, what we're feeling. You know what we're going through. You know what we're struggling with. You know the uncertainty that we're facing, the fears and the doubts that are in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, can you minister to them? Can you make yourself known to them? Can you transform people's lives? Those who are enslaved to sin, Lord, can you break the bondages of their enslavement? Can you help them to submit to you as king and turn to you and submit to your rule and to your reign in their lives? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 as we're wrapping up the rest of Daniel chapter 2. And so here is why uh, we picked the the book of Daniel. And here's my hope for us in this series. First of all, that as we see amidst the turmoil of, uh, of rulers and we see governing authorities and governments come and go as we find ourselves in midterm elections and everybody is promising this and promising that and those who are there will be out and those who are new will be in. What we're reminded of in this series in the book of Daniel is that God will and is establishing an everlasting kingdom. And we see Daniel as an exile, he remained faithful to the Lord. And so hopefully that encourages us because we ourselves are exiles. We are wanderers. And what are we supposed to do to remain faithful to the Lord? And why can we remain faithful to the Lord? Because we believe that he is sovereign and that he is in control of everything. Right now, the Lord is in control of everything. 
And even though sometimes we don't see it, we don't understand it, we don't know what in the world the Lord is doing, we can trust in believing that He is in control, that everything, He's working out everything for His glory and for our good. Now, last week in the, in the first part of chapter 2, I want to kind of catch you up on the context and then we're going to look at our text. Last week we saw the Lord created an impossible situation. He gave the king a dream, and this dream was so troubling for the king that he was not able to sleep, and he became unraveled, and in his unraveling, he made this impossible, unrealistic request. He wanted the wise men not just only to interpret the dream for the king, but also to recount the dream. And so the the wise men rightfully says, no man on earth can do what you've asked. It's impossible. It's unrealistic. The only one that can fulfill this request is maybe the gods, but the problem is they don't live with humanity. They are so impersonal. So even if we ask them to recount the dream and interpret the dream, we don't know if they're ever going to answer because they are not with us. And the king unravels further, and to this he demands that all the wise men throughout Babylon be executed, including Daniel and his three friends. And so we see Daniel with wisdom and with discretion and with faith appears before the king. And basically he's asking the king for more time, which in the past the king said no. But what's happening? The Lord is working. He grants Daniel that favor and somehow The king now responded, yes. So what do you do when the Lord creates an impossible situation? You go to him in prayer. You declare your dependence on him and cry out for mercy. And that's exactly what Daniel did. Daniel and his three friends pleaded to the Lord for mercy. Have mercy on us. And the Lord was gracious and merciful to them that he revealed to them the dream and the interpretation. And we see how Daniel responded with a hymn of praise. And so today, as we look at our text, we're going to see how the Lord is going to reveal His greatness to the nations by revealing the mystery of His kingdom and demonstrating His power. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon, He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will give him the interpretation. Then Ariel quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. Is that what happened? No. Who found who? Daniel found Ariok. Ariok did not find a single thing, but yet... Compared to Daniel, he exalts himself and gives himself more credit in hopes of a promotion. Verse 26 says this, The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Balthazar, Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, the mystery has been revealed to me. 
not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. I'm not going to recount the entire story, but just pull out some significance. So obviously the king asked Daniel, could he recount and interpret the dream? And Daniel, in a response, his response is both striking and a response in honesty and humility. He says, to be honest, to be blunt, no man can do this. No wise man, no medium, no magician, no diviner can help you out. Only the God of the heavens. Now remember last week we, we, we said, hey, notice how Daniel refers to the God of the heavens. Five times it's going to appear in chapter 2. And if it appears five times, that means it's significance. And what does it mean, the God of the heavens? It means that God's rule and domain is over everything. His rule is not confined to some geographical location. He's not just the God of Israel and the God of the promised land, but He is the God over all of heaven who rules everything. He is the one who is the revealer of mysteries. And he has let you know what's going to happen in the future. And we see this contrast between Ariok and Daniel. Ariok kind of tries to exalt himself and say, hey, I have found Daniel. And yet Daniel, in humility, gives God all the credit. He, 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 says, he, he, he says to the king, to be honest, the reason I can reveal this mystery, the reason why I have the interpretation of the dream is not because of me. It's not because I was smart and have more wisdom than anybody in this kingdom, but rather it is because of the Lord. He has granted me favor and he has given it to me. In a sense, he is doing all of this. He is revealing this dream and the interpretation of this dream so that you may know, King, what is going to happen. And what we're going to see at the end of the story, we're going to see how the king recognizes that he is the God of heaven. And he says that you are, that your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And to this, what's happening as Daniel stands before the king in humility and honesty and wisdom, Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, this is the spirit of Jesus before the high priest and Pilate. It's the spirit of Elijah before Jezebel. It's the spirit of John the Baptist before Herod. Daniel is full of the spirit of truth. And even King Nebuchadnezzar can recognize it. And so now we're going to look at the content of the dream and the interpretation of the dream, and then we'll wrap it up with some application. We're going to read a big chunk of the text, so bear with me here. Let's, let's look at verse 31. We're going to read all the way through 45. Here is the content of the dream. Your majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. 
Then the iron, the fire, clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crashes and shatters everything. And like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together just as iron does not mix with fired clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fire, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. So, so briefly, we'll summarize the content and look at the interpretation and look at the fulfillment of this biblical prophecy. So first of all, the, the Lord is showing the king a great statue that is dazzling, powerful, and terrifying. The appearance of the statue is fourfold. It has a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, stomach and thighs of bronze, legs of iron with, partly, uh, with feet with partly iron and partly fired clay. And then there was a stone broken off from a mountain without a human touching it. In other words, this is a divine stone. It strikes the statue. It's feet of iron and fire clay, and it crushes it. And the whole statue crumbles, and it becomes like dust carried away by the wind. In other words, it is gone and has disappeared. And this divine stone that was broken off from the mountain grows and grows and becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. That's the content. So what does all of this mean? How do we see this prophecy of this dream fulfilled in history? The first part of the statue is very obvious because Daniel tells us but the other parts of the statues are a little vague. However, 
The good news for us is most scholars agree to the various parts of the statue. So there's not too much controversy in the interpretation. So we can kind of breathe a sigh of relief. It's easy work. However, once we get into chapter 7, 8, 9, we are in big trouble and we'll just navigate our way through it as best as possible. So if you're taking notes, just not to confuse you, the head of gold is the Babylonian kingdom. If you're taking notes, the head of gold is the Babylonian kingdom. That's the easy part. We know this because in verse 37, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar as the exalted status of the king with the vast empire, it was a gift from the Lord. All that you have, all that you've received, you'll rule your reign over all creation. The sovereign power you have received is from the Lord and Daniel rightfully tells him, you are the head of gold. And we know from history, and even Daniel chapter 5, that the great Babylonian kingdom was a vast kingdom, but it wasn't an enduring kingdom. The kingdom only lasted for 65 years, and it came to an end in a hurry. Daniel chapter 5 is going to record the demise of the Babylonian kingdom by Darius the Mede. The second part of the statue, the chest and the arms of silver, if you're taking notes, is the Medo-Persia kingdom. The Medo-Persia kingdom. And we know that is the kingdom, even from, from, from the book of Daniel, that follows the Babylonian kingdom in 539 B.C. It was an inferior kingdom because of its totalitarian rule. However, it was a vast empire and it lasted longer than the Babylonians. The Babylonians lasted for 65 years. The Medo-Persia kingdom lasted for 200 years. The third part of the statue, the stomach and the thighs of bronze is the Greek kingdom. History tells us it was built by Alexander the Great. And he is the one who would conquer the known world. It was a kingdom that spread fast by Alexander the Great, and yet he died at the young age of 33, and his kingdom would only last 185 years. And the last part, the legs of iron with feet of iron and partly clay, is the Roman kingdom. The Roman kingdom. Now, let me give you a little fine print here. There, are very, there is a group, a very small group, that believes that this kingdom is not the Roman kingdom, but rather the global kingdom that we're seeing develop today. Um, it's not a lot of people that have that view. I'm not fully convinced on it yet, because here's why. Because of the, 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 the stone that smashes, that, that's, that turns into a great mountain. And I'm going to tell you why, because I want to give you the interpretation later. But we do believe, most scholars believe, it's the Roman kingdom. Rome was a powerful and great empire. It was as strong as iron. It did crush and shatter everything. Just like iron that smashes, it's going to, and it did smash and crush all the other kingdoms. According to, to, to scholars... That how, even though in the decline of the kingdom, Rome lasted for almost 1,600 years. Its influence was great. 
and we still see its influence today in Western civilization. But as Daniel tells us in verses 41 to 43, we see that Rome was incredibly strong. It was made out of iron, and iron crushes everything, but it was also vulnerable and divided because the feet were made of partly iron and partly clay. They mixed together, but not really. And that was the great demise of the Roman Empire. It was a divided empire because it took all people from all nations and gathered it together. And even among its rulers, they were divided. They tried to unite one another through marriage. That was just a recipe of a disaster. That's not going to fix anything. And yet what caused the ultimate demise of Rome was its disunity and it crumbled. It was fragile. So here's this statue representing these four kingdoms. The Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greek, the Romans. But then aside from this statue, we find there is a stone that breaks up from the mountain. And this stone, after it crushes the statue, is t- turns into a great mountain. If you're taking notes, who is the stone? What is this great mountain? It is Christ and the kingdom of God. It is Christ and the kingdom of God. And here's why I'm I'm not fully convinced that the fourth empire of legs of iron and feet of iron and clay, and again, if you want to disagree with me, you're more than welcome to disagree with me, okay? So I'm not saying this is the truth. I'm just saying here's why I'm not convinced that, that, that this is a possible global empire that's developing is because if Jesus came, what did Jesus, when he came, what did he do when it comes to his kingdom? Did he not inaugurate his kingdom? Yes, is his kingdom here right now? Yes, and it is growing. And when he comes back, he's going to fully consummate his kingdom. And all the inhabitants of the earth will be under his rule and under his reign. But the fourth, but the, um, the stone that smashes and becomes the great mountain is Christ and the kingdom of God. And this is really what this dream is all about. It's not about the other kingdoms. It's about the stone that turns into a mountain. And notice that the stone that turns into a mountain is not part of the of this statue. Meaning the, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greek, and the Roman kingdom are purely of this world while the stone was cut not by human hands, but rather divine, which means its origin is not from this world. It has a divine origin. And it is eternal in its duration, and it's going to be superior to any other kingdom of this world. That's what the dream is telling us. It's broken off. It was divine in its origin. It smashes all the other kingdoms. It starts off small, and it grows into a mountain. It fills the whole earth. It is eternal, and no kingdom will be able to stand against it. That, my friends, is the kingdom of God. Now, you might be wondering, okay, Neil, I get it. I like that idea of the stone being Jesus and the stone turning into a mountain is the kingdom of God, but how do we know that it is Jesus and his kingdom? Well, Jesus identifies himself as the stone and a parable about the wicked tenants 
So in Luke chapter 20, verse 17 to 18, Jesus cites other texts in this parable, and this is what he says, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is known uh, as the the stone the builders have rejected, the cornerstone, the capstone, the rock on which he builds his church. He is the stone. And the kingdom of God has often been described as something small, something in, 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 in humility of origin that becomes bigger and bigger. And so Jesus, in a very similar parable to the stone mountain, he speaks of God's kingdom as a grain of mustard seed. He says the kingdom of God is like a grain of a mustard seed that a sower plants. And even though it's the smallest of seeds, when it's planted, what happens? It looks insignificant. It's really tiny. You're like, what what good is going to come from this tiny little seed? But then it starts to grow. And it starts to grow and it becomes the largest of garden plants and it becomes a tree and the birds of the air comes and makes their nest in its branches. In other words, the kingdom of God starts off small and it grows and it grows and it grows just like a stone that turns into a mountain. It's a tiny little seed that turns into a tree that provides protection and provision for all of those who find refuge in it. And even the Old Testament talks about God's rule. And I don't have time to to phrase every text. Isaiah 2 verse 2, that's the only text and we're going to move on. Isaiah 2 verse 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. What's Isaiah saying? Where does the Lord reside? The mountain of God. Where the presence of the Lord has always been described as where the mountain of the Lord is, where he makes himself known. And the nations will flow to it, will run to it, because he is the eternal king, the one and only king who rules and reigns. Now, it's very interesting. If you compare the dream of of the earthly kingdoms, With the kingdoms of God, notice the differences. Each earthly kingdom has its own glory, but it's also its own end. And notice how the statue progresses from valuable metals to least valuable. It starts off with gold, then silver, then bronze, and then iron, and then clay and iron mixed together. The statue starts from the head and moves to the chest, to the belly and thighs, to the feet and the toes. The list of metals in the statue that decreases in value and splendor, but in a sense increases in toughness and endurance. Scholars believe, commentators say, this indicates a general decline in the moral quality of that, in, of that kingdom but also the increase of time that they endure. Which means the progression of world history 
is not in an upward progression towards glory. The kingdoms are decreasing in value. History is not moving up. History is moving down towards dishonor and unity. But God's kingdom starts off small, insignificant, not big of a deal whatsoever, humble beginnings, a stone. Do you all find stones impressive? Not valuable stones, just a rock. But then you stand in front of a mountain, and what do you do? Whoa. The kingdom of God is a rock. Insignificant. What's this thing going to do? And then it turns into a mountain as it increases in glory. A kingdom that unites the whole earth forever. We're going to get to application a little bit. I know you guys are anxious for application. But after Daniel interprets the dream, he reminds the king that God has made this known. What's going to happen so that the king will know all of this is from God. And he says that the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. And look at how the king responds. Look at verse 46 as we wrap up our text. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. As Daniel requests, the king appointed Shadrach, Mishap, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in, at the king's court. What happened? The greatness of God was displayed. Remember last week, we, the truth that we learned is that the Lord is the one who creates an impossible situation so that he can reveal his greatness to the nations. What happened through this dream? Through giving the content and the interpretation of the dream. King Nebuchadnezzar could not deny the greatness of God. In response, he gives glory to God. He says, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of of mysteries. In a sense, I find it very interesting. The story of Daniel seems very similar to the story of Joseph. Both taken into a foreign country, both remain faithful to the Lord, both interpret dreams, and both being promoted within the kingdom. And as God did not abandon Joseph, he also did not abandon Daniel. Rather, as the Lord was with Joseph and his people in Egypt, the Lord was with Daniel and his people in Babylon. And how did Egypt end? Egypt ended with the Lord raising up a deliverer that led to the exodus. Daniel, a new sense of Joseph, in Babylonian captivity, the Lord will raise up a deliverer and perhaps lead his people into another exodus. 
who is that deliverer who is leading us into the promised land. His name is Jesus. Let, let, let's talk application here. So from this dream, again, I don't want this just to be intellectual information. You're like, oh, that's interesting. What does this truth, this text reveal to us about who God is? And how do we respond to God in light of this truth? So if you're taking notes, here's the very first application that we learn about who God is. God knows the future, has planned the future, and will accomplish the future. He knows the future. Why does he know the future? Because he's planned the future. That means he will accomplish the future. Isaiah 46 verse 9 to 10 says this. Remember what happened long ago. For I am God and there's no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. Daniel even says this, the great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation is reliable. God knows the future. God has planned the future. And God will accomplish the future. Why? Because He is the God of the heavens. That means He is in charge of everything. He is ruling and reigning over everything. There is nothing out of His control. If He was only the God of a certain geographical location, He can try to make plans, but He will not be able to accomplish those plans because there are certain things that will be outside of His control and rule. Just like you. How many of you make plans? All of you make plans. And how many sometimes execute those plans exactly the way you've planned? Sometimes, but not all the time, because a lot of things happen that you did not plan for because there are certain things that are outside of your control. But not with God. Because He is sovereign. Because He is in control of everything. He knows what's going to happen because He has planned it and He can execute it with all authority. Because he is sovereign over all. And what we have to understand is when God gave Nebuchadnezzar this dream, he didn't predict the future to Nebuchadnezzar. He ordained the future for him. He made known to Daniel the coming king because he purposed its time and its sequence of its arrival. And what that means for us is that history is moving in a certain direction. It's not a bunch of random acts that are occurring. It has a direction. It has a purpose. It's easy for us to find ourselves kind of disembobulated when we look at all the random things that's happening and we look at one another and we're like, what in the world is going on? And even though the reality is we don't know what's happening, we do know that history is moving in a direction because it has a purpose, because God has ordained for it to happen. And if that is true... How does it impact how we live? What does that mean for us? It means for us that we can respond to that truth as we can rest in the Lord. We can trust the Lord. When we find ourselves in an uncertain situation, when we find ourselves in chaos, 
we do not have to respond like the king, unravel and fall apart. But we can rest. We can trust. We can believe that God is accomplishing the future that he has ordained. And he's not some random God that we don't know if he's good or not. He is a good God. And so even in the evil that he has ordained, it is for the purpose of his glory and for our good. And the Bible tells us the Lord is faithful. Trust in him. Even when his people are unfaithful, the Lord remains faithful. So if God knows the future, if God has planned the future, if God has accomplished the future, how do you respond towards the future? You trust in the Lord. You rest in Him. That nothing is going to happen outside of His control. Nothing is going to shock Him. He's not going to be like, oh man, I didn't see that happen. What are we going to do? He says, trust me. Rest in me. Look to me. The second truth, if you're taking notes, is this. The God of the Bible is the Lord of history and ruler over all authorities. The God of the Bible is the Lord of history and ruler over all authorities. In Daniel's hymn of praise, this is what he said about the Lord. He said, and this is in chapter 2, um, I don't have, didn't write down the exact reference, You'll, you can find it. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons and he removes kings and he sets up kings. Who changes the seasons? Who removes the kings? Who sets up the kings? Who raises up kingdoms and tears them down? The God of the Bible. He is the ruler of history, the ruler over all authority. Verse 37, 38 in Daniel chapter 2 says, uh, to, when Daniel looked at King Nebuchadnezzar, he said, the God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. Who gave King Nebuchadnezzar all of his glory and his exalted status in his kingdom? Who allowed him to rule over all? God did. And 600 years passed by between the Babylonian, the head of gold, and the stone that was cut out not by human hand. And throughout the centuries, God has guided the events of history and those who are in charge. He bestowed political might according to his sovereignty, his sovereign purpose, and he removes kings and set up new ones at his pleasure. If the Lord is Lord over history, if he is ruler over all authority, what does that mean for us? How does that truth impact our lives? Very similar to the first truth. Do we become unravel after midterm elections? No. What, what's happening? The Lord is working. The Lord is appointing people. I don't know why. I can't explain it. 
Somehow in his sovereign plan, he provides, gives power to some, and he removes. But that means I can still trust him. And I do think, in, in a sense, the truth that if he's Lord over history, ruler over all authorities, not only should that humble me, but that, in a sense, should comfort me. And how did Nebuchadnezzar respond to the Lord? He bowed down and worshiped. And so these truths that, that, that we are hearing from, from, from God's word should humble us, comfort us. We bow down and worship of him, saying, Lord, you are God of gods. You are king of kings. You know everything. We know nothing. We cannot understand why you do certain things. Our minds cannot comprehend it. But one thing we know for certain, that you are sovereign and rule over all. We should plead for wisdom. We should trust in his timing. We should depend on his strength. And we should remain faithful. Now, I would love to tell you another application is if you remain faithful like Daniel, you all will be promoted. But King Jesus says, if you remain faithful, you probably will all be persecuted. So maybe that's the application. Promotion might not come your way. You might lose your job. But that's okay. You can trust in the Lord. Because in a sense, you've already been promoted if you're in his kingdom. You're under his rule, under his reign. And by grace, as Paul affirmed, we can affirm the same thing. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Either way you look at it, you have Jesus Christ. So let's wrap it up. Last application. And really, this is our way. How does all of this point to Jesus if you're taking notes, is this. Christ is king who rules for all eternity. He is king who will rule for all eternity. We've already established who's the stone. He is Jesus. Paul calls Jesus the mystery that was revealed to us. He is the rock that will build his church. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He has become the cornerstone, and he is the king of all kings that will rule for all of eternity. And based on the dream we've looked at, as we've already seen the earthly rulers and the earthly kingdom, and we compare it to the heavenly ruler and the heavenly kingdom, we've already found that they are not similar. For Jesus is a different kind of king. His rule and reign is unlike any other rule or reign we've ever seen. His kingdom was not established through war or political power, but his kingdom was established through serving and dying on the cross. His subjects did not come under his rule because he conquered and enslaved them, but rather his subjects came under his rule because he redeemed them and he set them free from slavery. His kingdom is not a divided kingdom that is fragile, but it is a strong kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. And we enter this kingdom, not through strength, but through the weakness of repentance and the new birth we receive. And we receive the kingdom of God like children. Why do we need this king? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he says, whatever we worship, we serve. All of us worship something. 
I think even in Titus, in our confession part, with the assurance part, it says we have become passionate to our desires, enslaved to our passions and our desires. Here's what's true about us. We are all worshipers, and we're all worshiping something, and the very thing we worship is enslaving us. And what we see in our culture today, we are a people that are enslaved. We're either enslaved to our passions and our desires, the things that we chase after thinking it will satisfy us, and we go after it, and, we, and, and then we obtain it, and yet what do we find after we've received it? Are you happy? Well, a little bit. But then all of a sudden you realize, man, this is just one big disappointment. This does not satisfy me. This does not fulfill me. And the fact that then after that you keep chasing after another thing means that you are enslaved to it. And then we get the kings of this earth who come and they promise us all of these things. They promise us prosperity, wealth, and happiness, the pursuit of liberty. And then we think, yes, this is going to happen. And then we chase after those things. And what do the kings do? Year in, year out. They disappoint. They do not fulfill. And you find yourself more enslaved than ever before. And you're chasing after things, worshiping after things, hoping that you would make you happy. And you find yourself more miserable than ever before. And all of your hope is either in yourself or in other people that somehow is going to satisfy you. And that, my friends, is called bondage. And I know most of us don't like that kind of language, but let's call it like it is. We are enslaved people. Whatever you're pursuing, whatever you're worshiping, even though you want to tell me, you know, I can stop whenever I want to. You just tell me and I'll stop it. The reality of it is, no, you cannot. You are enslaved to it. Think back in your life. How many times have you said, if I've only made this, if I only get through this, Life will be better. Life will be easier. I would be happier. I would be satisfied. And yet, you're not. And you're in this hamster wheel of enslavement. And all the kings cannot deliver you because they themselves are enslaved. They really don't care about you. They care about their own might, their own power. But you need a new king, a better king, a king that can come and set you free. A king that can come and deliver you from the bondages. Redeem you and buy you back and bring you into his kingdom. And his name is King Jesus. And the way he has delivered you, or the way he can deliver you from the bondages of your sin, is by buying you back redeeming you, paying for you by laying down his life for you and saying, look at me, these things do not satisfy. Come into my kingdom and let me rule and reign over you and find meaning and fulfillment in me and me alone. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, are we living under his rule, under his reign? we find ourselves constantly enslaved to the kingdoms of this earth? Are we trusting him to be a better king that has redeemed us and bought us?
believing that what he's done for us is enough? Do we believe that living under his rule and under his reign is where freedom can be found? I plead with you, submit to the king and turning to him and by faith believing that what he's done for you is sufficient, will be satisfying. Life can only be found in his kingdom. And his kingdom compared to the earthly kingdom might seem small and insignificant and upside down and humble, but let me tell you, his kingdom is growing and will become a mighty mountain that will rule over the whole earth. And the Bible tells us that one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And for some of you, it might be too late when that happens. So right now, submit to the rule and reign of the king. Let him set you free from the bondages of your sin and believe and trust in him. Let me pray for us. Sovereign God, Lord over history, ruler over all authority, power and might belongs to you and you alone. You raise up kings and you destroy kings and kingdoms. And you have promised us a better king, a king that will deliver us from the tyrannical rule of sin and bring us into your kingdom where we will be safe, where freedom will be found, a kingdom of light a kingdom of eternal blessing and eternal life. And I beg you, Lord Jesus, open up eyes. May people see the, the crummy kingdom they're living in right now, the kingdom that does not satisfy, the kingdom that oppresses, the kingdom that is filled with darkness, death, and destruction. And Lord, help them to look to you, the ultimate king, the king of all kings, who laid down his life for them. Lord, help them to see that. Help them to turn to you and trust you. As we continue to pray, for some of you, there's going to be different applications. If you are a Christian, if you belong to the kingdom of God and Jesus is the king of your life and rules over you, your application is going to be to trust in him, to rest him in, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of uncertainty. And so whatever you're going through, why don't you ask the Lord to help you to, to rest in him and trust in him, to find comfort in the fact that not only does he know the future, he plans the future and will accomplish the future, that he is Lord of history and ruler over all authority. Ask the Lord to help you to trust him. And then for some of you, maybe you're not part of God's kingdom yet. You are enslaved. You're under slave under the tyrannical rule of sin. And it is an oppressive kingdom. And the only thing that that kingdom has in store for you is death and destruction. But there is a better king. His name is Jesus. I want to invite you to trust in him, to look to him, to turn to him. He offers you salvation. He laid down his life for you. He will buy you back from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into his kingdom. And you just have to receive it. Look to him.
trust in him. So if that's you this morning, ask the Lord to receive you. Ask the Lord to help you realize what an awful kingdom you're in right now, that you need a better king. Ask the Lord to help you to trust him that he is a better king and life is found in his kingdom. Holy Spirit, may we respond and may you convict. As we get to the table, this table is a shadow of what is to come. The Bible talks about a great wedding banquet, a feast. Think about that. When you are under the rule of the greatest of king, the mightiest of king, the best of king, the most faithful of king, what do kings provide for their subjects? Food, life. And this is a reminder at the king's table, there's plenty of food, and we are invited in to sit at his table and to feast. We get to feast on him. We get to be reminded, look at what a great king we have that has delivered us from the bondages of sin by giving us his body and his blood. Have you ever seen a king do that? No. This king is a different king. Let us feast on him. Let us look to him. Let us trust him, knowing that what we get to taste now is just something small of what we're going to experience for all eternity, living in the presence of our King. And for you as a believer, let that encourage your heart. Let it be like medicine to your weary soul. And for you as a non-believer, let it make you jealous of saying, I want to be part of that kingdom. I want to be under that King's rule that provides the best of the best. And you can be surrendered to the Lord. And so as we go ahead and distribute these elements, like meditate on the wonderful king we have. Meditate on his bountiful provision. Jesus says, I am the living bread. If you eat of me, you will never be what? You'll never be hungry. I'm the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never be thirsty. You know what that means? you will always be satisfied in him because he is the ultimate one that satisfies. So let us come and let us sit at the king's table. Let us feast on the king and the provision he has provided for us. And let, we, let us marvel at one, what a wonderful king we have. Let's, let's go ahead and distribute these elements. Have you ever seen a king who laid down his life for his lowly servants? would give up everything he has to bring them into his kingdom. That's the kind of king we have. King Jesus gave his body to you so that you can be in his kingdom. Eat it in remembrance of him. King Jesus shed his blood for you so that you can have a new covenant with him and your sins can be forgiven. You can be washed as white as snow. Drink it in remembrance of him. 
Let us praise our King, who will rule and reign for all eternity, our righteous and just King. King Jesus, we love you, we praise you. You are a wonderful King. You are a righteous and just King. You are an all-powerful King. And you rule over all, and there is not a domain that you have no authority over. You have authority over everything. And Lord, we are your loyal subjects. We are your servants. And we delight in our King. And we love to live under your rule and your reign because life and freedom is found under your rule and your reign. And we look forward to the day that we get to enjoy your presence, not by faith, but by sight. That we will lay down our crowns of glory and say, behold the King, the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. And for right now, we're waiting for you to return to destroy your enemies once and for all and to establish and consummate your kingdom forever and ever. Help us to remain faithful until that time and to proclaim to the world what a great king we have. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship our King, King Jesus.